need is always the same. The need to be able to know and to understand so that your message is getting across. Because words, thoughts, ideas, plans, uh, whatever it may be, are essentially meaningless unless they're defined. Many of you can think back to your high school or college days. You were looking at maybe a science textbook and it, it's saying all of these terms that are, are so big you, you can't even pronounce them. And it doesn't matter how many times you read over that term, if you don't know what it means, how much are you going to get out of the book, the textbook? Nothing. Things are meaningless unless they are defined. And when we look at our spiritual lives, we find that our lives too must be defined by something. In fact, when we look at each of our individual lives, whether it's my life or your life, it is not a question of whether your life is defined by something. It is a question of what your life is defined by. And we've already seen from our text in Colossians 3 that as believers, our life is to be defined by Jesus. If you're in Colossians chapter 3, again, uh, look at what verse 3 says by way of review. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our identities are now found in God because of our union with Jesus. So if you are a believer today, your life is to be defined by Jesus. That is not, however, just in a futuristic or vague con spiritual concept of, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer, I'm positioned with Jesus because I'm a believer. This is to be a defining that characterizes our everyday lives, our actions, the way we think, the way we interact with one another. And we have been looking for the past few weeks at the rest of chapter 3, where Paul is defining for us in both negative and positive terms what should be characteristic in the walk of a Christian. These are things that believers should not be doing, should be putting off, and as we will get to in the coming weeks, here are things that believers should be putting on if we are going to be living in the practical sense, in the everyday sense, if we're going to be living a life defined by Jesus. Now last week we saw from verse 5 that our walk in Christ is first of all to be defined by death. You may say, well that's a real interesting um, thought that life is defined by death. 
I mean, when, when, when you were born, if, if you're married with children, when your kids were born, or grandkids, or nieces, nephews, what, whoever it may be, when they were born, the characterization of their life is they, their birth date. It is life that usually characterizes life. And Jesus does say that except you are born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there is life that characterizes the Christian life. But guess what characterizes the Christian life before life? It is death. That we once were not like in a physical birth. We were non-existent until God blessed the couple with the gift of life in the woman's womb, went from non-existence to existence, the Christian life goes from existence, but an existence of death, to an existence of being born again and given life. We've seen from this characterization that the Christian life is to be characterized by death, that there is a call to put to death what is earthly in us. In fact, verse 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And because we are pretty simple thinkers most of the time, if Paul just put a period there, we would just kind of shake our heads and be, uh-huh, okay, we'll put to death what's earthly in us. We're no longer dead, so we'll put to death those remaining remnants of, of those issues that characterized our old existence. And then we'd walk out and it would be real vague. So Paul gets specific here. What are some of those earthly things that, that are in us? He says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. We see here, as we talked about last week, these are sins dealing with the sexual realm. Why? Because so often that is where the impurities of the heart manifest themselves in outward actions. Get this, whenever we sin outwardly, whenever you sin outwardly, whatever it may be, whether it's a lie, you lose your temper, um, you get on that internet to sites you should not be going to, whatever it is, whenever you sin outwardly, that is not the beginning of the sin. The sin is allowing our minds to be caught up with all of these things. And Jesus says the wickedness that is in the heart simply overflows to the action. Paul says if we are believers in Christ, our life is to characterize something other than what is earthly. We looked at three implications from verse 5 last week that I just want to go over and review quickly with you. Regarding our putting to death those things that are earthly, the first implication we looked at last week is that your walk... My walk must be governed and guided by whose you are 
and who you are. In other words, if you are going to live a life defined by Christ, a life that is in line with your true identity, it is going to consciously be lived in light of whose we are. And what is verse 3? Whose are we according to verse 3? Now, we're, 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 we're unified with Christ, but whose are we ultimately? In God, right? We are God's people. Who does God say that we are in Scripture? It says that we are the redeemed, we are the called, we are the beloved. In our Gospel Project curriculum, in the student books, which I'll be teaching the teens this morning, in the Christ Connection section, which is the most important section in that in each of those weekly lessons. Listen what it, to what it says. Again, this is in the context of today's lesson on Saul. God has said something similar to us. When you were a sinner, I came to earth and hung on a cross for you. The God of the universe sacrificed Himself for us. He loves us immeasurably. When we understand this, it liberates us from the driving need to be great. Or really, in any other context, the driving need to do whatever, to make a name for ourselves. And then get this last sentence. Knowing the value of God's gift breaks us from the captivating power of sin over our lives. Folks, could it be today that you are struggling with the putting to death because you do not realize the value of God's gift that He has given to you? Could it be that your captivation is toward whatever sin or lesser thing, even if it's a good thing, that that has your heart greater than our God's redeeming work in your life? You see, before we can ever get to verse 5, we have to get to verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. Before our actions will ever reflect the life-giving purpose that only Jesus brings, our hearts first must be full of the reality of that. Your walk must be governed and guided by whose you are and who you are. That does not mean we will no longer struggle with sin. That does no longer mean that, that we will not have our up days and our down days, but what it does mean is that there will be a driving passion that causes us to pursue Him amidst the failures to get back up and to live a life through the power of not what you can do, but through the power of what Jesus has already done. Amen?
Implication number two we looked at last week is you must stop playing with that which can destroy you. Again, we looked at this. Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man carry fire in his chest without his clothes being burned? How many times do we flirt with that which is sexually immoral, with impurity, with evil lusts and passions and desires? which all stems from, as our text says, a covetous, idolatrous heart. And we think, hey, I'm okay because it's only affecting me or it's not affecting anybody. But how untruthful that saying is. As we looked at last week, maybe God is calling us to get rid of things in our life. And what this ultimately leads us to, the third implication we looked at last week, is you have to answer the question, who am I going to serve? Who am I going to serve? You remember Joshua who is about to pass off the scene and and he's talking to the children of Israel and they're they're in the promised land. God has, has fulfilled his promises to them. He's blessed them. Joshua says, Choose this day who you will serve. At the end of the day, it comes to a personal decision. It doesn't matter what church you are attending ultimately. Now, to get the right things into your life, yes, it very much matters that you are in a a Bible-focused church. But at the end of the day, coming to a good church does not make the final difference. Being raised and having a good past doesn't make the final difference. What makes the final difference is saying, God, would you take this sinful life and heart and I choose to serve you? Would you do through me whatever you can with this flawed vessel? That is what makes the difference. No preacher can get inside your uh, spiritual body, so to speak, and start doing surgery on your heart. No family member, no parent can do that. It is the work of the Lord and it is your individual response to it. So many times we can have bad attitudes and reactions of, oh, the service wasn't good, or this wasn't good, or I'm offended here, or this is wrong, and this is wrong, and my family's wrong. And, and, and the, the, you know what the, the issue is? Is we need to start, stop looking outside for excuses of everything that's wrong and start looking at our own hearts. That maybe there's a disconnect of who you are and how you are living and focusing your life. You see, we are to put off. This morning, we are going to wrap up looking at the walk of Christ that is defined by death. And as I had you recite together with me last week, we're going to say this again, but the key thought of this passage is, if your life is centered on Christ, then your actions will show it. 
We're going to say this again. And again, we're going to change this to the first person. We're speaking this for ourselves. If my life is focused on Christ, my actions will show it. Let's say this truth together, okay? If my life is centered on Christ, then my actions will show it. Let's not go to the second part of that, of that, of that key thought first. It doesn't start with the actions. I mean, as parents, aren't you and I good, if you're a parent, at trying to change kids' actions without seeking to get to the heart? Why? Because it's so much easier. I can make Timmy or Isaac be quiet, shut up, and sit on the couch till I get my patience back. But what does that do for their heart? It's easier to deal with the actions. And it's easier to deal with the actions in our individual lives. I mean, that, that's, why you, that's why weight loss plans and, and exercise plans, all of these things are, are so, um, uh, New Year's resolutions, all of those things are so appealing to us because we think, ah, I'm going to change my actions. I'm going to control them. But man, unless there's something in here that's working, those actions are just going to go right back to where they were. Our life first has to be centered on Christ. It is only then that our actions will change. So we're going to continue and look at this walk, our walk in Christ as it is defined by death. We've already read verse 5, the call to put to death these things. Look at what verse 6 says. On account of these, what are these? The things we just read. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. What we see here is in our call to put to death we have to remember that not only have we been called to live according to what Christ has purchased us to, but there is a reality of death that is evident in the things that God's people are called to do and the things that God's people are called not to do. You see, the reality of the presence of sin is both to encourage us that we are no longer slaves to sin, but it's also to warn us of the continual danger of sin. You see, the encouragement is the fact that through God's working in our life, through His power, through His transformation that He can bring us, that we can even put to death sin. That's the encouragement. The danger is, as long as we're on this side of eternity, on this earth, we have to guard ourselves against sin. Because sin and death are real. There's a couple thoughts that I want you to, to grasp from this short verse of verse 6. Account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. First thought is that God's wrath will one day be fully 
and finally poured out on all sin. There's not a single sin in this world that God's wrath will not leave unturned. Not a single one. And there are a lot of sins in our world and in our society that we could bring up. I was just looking, for instance, at a very popular societal opinion, abortion. According to one uh, source, there are 40 to 50 million abortions per year. That averages out to about 125,000 per day. Again, according to this source, there's around 3,000 per day in, in just the USA. That's about 22% of all pregnancies, excluding miscarriages. Did you know that though this sin is rampant in our society, country, and world, God will not leave such sin unjudged on the final day. The very word order of this verse in the original language points to the impending nature of God's wrath. Literally, you could read this verse, because of these things, it is coming, the wrath of God. It's emphasizing the imminent, impending judgment that God is bringing on this world. You see, folks, before we can ever talk about a God of love, we have to talk about a God of justice, a God of righteousness, of holiness, a God who is perfect, because it is only then that God's love is truly magnified. The love of God is not that God is a wishy-washy God that just overlooks sin. Sin must be dealt with. And God's wrath will one day be fully and finally poured out on all sin. If you are a believer in Christ, is it not a blessing as we will observe the Lord's table and remember what Jesus has done for us that all of those sins that we have committed the very nature that, it, that even before we've committed sin, we've been born with this sin nature, we were born spiritually dead, that all of those things were placed upon Jesus and God's wrath was poured out on His own Son instead of us. Isn't that awesome? But that is what characterizes a believer, not an unbeliever. How our hearts should ache for those that are still under the wrath of God. How our hearts should yearn for those in our community, in our workplaces, in our schools that do not know Jesus because what does the Bible say? They are under the wrath of God. Second thought. To commit these sins that are mentioned in verse 5 places us in standing with unbelievers. 
Here we have verse 6 that says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So how distorted and ironic is it for God's people to somehow be characterized by the things that we read of in verse 5? What is that doing? It is placing us in, the, in standing with, with the very things that unbelievers are doing and will be judged for. If you would, if your finger is in the book of Ephesians, just flip over there very quickly. You're going to notice how similar this sounds to our passage in Colossians. First of all, in verse 1, uh, Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Again, isn't that the same thought that we've been talking about? Our walk is to be characterized by God. We're imitators of God. How can we do that? Because we're His beloved children. He's given us His Son. He's given us the Holy Spirit. It says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But now notice how we also find similarity in Colossians with what Paul lists. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Because look at what it says in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You get that? If our lives are characterized by these sins, what, what the Scriptures is saying is that we need to take close examination of one of two things. Either there is a great disconnect between what, who we are in Jesus and how we are living, or we're not His children at all. One of those two things is the case. And I personally believe that far too often, believers who are living out of accordance with, with God's stated desires and will in His Word, I mean, th there's, there's, there's no guilt, there, there, there's no sense of, hey, I'm actually offending my God and there, there's no remorse. We're not talking about someone that's, that's struggling and getting back up and, and, and falls again, but, and, and they're seeking prayers from God's people. And, and, and they're, they're, yes, they struggle with these sins, but yet they're, they're, their hearts just condemn them because of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about people that are just brazen with what they do. And I think so many times in, in, in the Christian realm, we have people that say, oh yeah, I went to a Christian youth group. Oh yeah, my parents were raised in church. Oh yeah, I prayed this prayer when I was six. So yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm not living for God the way I should, but you know, I know I'm a believer. And I think far more times than we would like to admit, 
or even think about. There's no true spiritual life there. What does Jesus say will happen on the last day? The day that verse 6 is talking about in Colossians. On that day, Jesus says, there will be many that cry out and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done all of these things in your name? And what does Jesus say? He says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. And on one end of the scene, I am not trying to get anyone in this room to doubt their salvation. (laughs) We're not in the business of trying to, to create doubt. But on the flip end, I am trying to get you to sincerely think, what am I basing my salvation upon? Is it just upon, upon a bunch of words I said? Or upon some things in my past? Or is it based upon my heart conviction and even the very struggle with sin that I'm going through today? Even that is an evidence to my salvation. Nine times out of ten, the individuals that come to me and I know come to other pastors will say the same thing. Nine times out of ten, people that are struggling with assurance of salvation, they are as saved as you can be. If That's, even, that's not even a legitimate phrase, but they are, they are secure in Jesus' hand. It's the ones that just take it flippantly for granted are usually the ones that really have cause for concern. Folks, to commit these sins, the Scripture says, places us in standing, in camaraderie with those that are unbelievers. That's why in Ephesians 5, 6, as it goes on, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Listen, it doesn't matter what culture says. It doesn't matter what your friends say to rationalize sin. He said, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. But there's a third truth that we have to take to heart from verse 6, and it is this. We have something greater to live for than momentary pleasure and greed. There is something greater to live for than momentary pleasure and greed. All of these things in this world will one day be wiped away. Only what is true will last. Notice what 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 through 10 state. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, before we move on, what it says there, again, is those individuals that this is what characterizes their life, a non-remorse for these sins, and they just go on. 
that that is not a true indicator of one who is a child of God. And then he goes on to talk to Christians and says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, it doesn't say that believers don't struggle with these things. It doesn't say that believers never falter. What it says is that this type of living in unrepentant choices is no longer characteristic of God's people. And what do we have to cling to when we struggle with these things in our life? The fact that we have been washed. We have been set apart. We have been justified or declared righteous, not by our own merits, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Spirit of God's working. You see, even in our sin and our failure. The Christian can find confidence. The Christian doesn't need to run away from God because our life is hidden already in God. We run to Him and say, Lord, I've done it again. I've failed again. But as the song we so often sing, we know Your grace is enough. Amen? You see, there's also a realization of death. There's not just a reality, but we need to come to realize something. And 1 Corinthians 6.10 hits it on the head. Look at what verse 7 says in Colossians 3. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. You see, folks, in the past, our practice or our walk characterized our life, our living. That is all that could characterize our walk, our living. And you may say, hey, I haven't done any of these things um, openly, although again, as we talked about last week, we know that God's law hits us all because these are not only sins of the actions, but sins of the heart. But we may say, I've never been sexually immoral you could even lie to yourself and say, I've never had a lustful thought or, or uh, an evil desire, which we know is a lie. But guess what? The covetousness of the heart, it's like a, an atomic bomb that goes off and you see that cloud and it kind of just spreads upon the land and everything is flattened in its wake. There's no way to justify that. No way. In the past, our practice characterized our life. If you are here today and you are trying to justify your own righteousness and you think, I don't need Jesus' righteousness, guess again. But we also see from this passage in the present, our practice 
is likewise to characterize our life. Is what you have been called to as a follower of Jesus characterizing your life? And I'm not talking about perfection again. But can others see Jesus in you? However flawed of a picture of Jesus, can others see a difference in your life? Do people at your work, people around the community, do they know that, man, there's something different about that guy, that girl? Do they, do people hear even amidst our assembly of God's people, can we see God's working in your life? Not in a judgmental sense, but in a sense of healthy walking beside one another, seeking to grow together to serve our Lord. Because what verse 7 also shows us in these you too once walked when you were living in them is we as believers are not to hang our noses down on those that are without Christ in judgmental attitudes. Because some people can say, yeah, they would know I'm a believer because I'm always kind of looking down on them. They know I'm a believer because they always feel like, oh, there's so-and-so that feels like they're better than me. And that's not the attitude we're to live with either. We are to remember that these things, even if not openly, mentally, emotionally, our hearts were characterized by these. And the attitude of a Christian is not one of casting the first stone, the attitude of a Christian is, there I was, and but by the grace of God, there I go. Can I show you who Jesus is? The answer. As Christians, there's going to be times with other believers that we need to rebuke to exhort. Why? Because what should be characteristic of God's people is no longer being characteristic of their lives. And true Christian love should say, hey, brother, hey, sister, what's going on? We're concerned. Because our present practice is to characterize the life that we have in Christ. As we close today and we look to the Lord's table, we look at and, part, and look to take part of communion. Do you need to say, God, my life has not been mirroring the life that you have bought me Man, I've been dwelling in all the wrong places, mentally, emotionally, whatever. 
I need to remember that I was washed. I've been justified. My standing now is one of unity with Jesus being hidden in God. I need, I need the realization of what I have in Christ to burn deep within my heart. Folks, that's something only Jesus can do. Would you respond to his call today? Let's pray.